All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about the situation in Solidar. What is the latest update? Um, retreat, Ukraine military retreat. I think it's inevitable, but uh, Alensky seems to be dragging his feet there, even though Zeluzhny, from what I've read, reports saying that Zeluzhny is saying, get out now from Solidar or else we're going to be encircled. My hunch there is that uh, the Alensky regime, the collective West NATO, they're trying to figure out a narrative to how to frame this because they're going to have a really difficult time framing this uh, this defeat in Solidar. Anyway, well, well, what do you think is going on? I, I think I think you're right on both counts. First of all, there were reports. You know, it's always difficult to confirm these reports exactly, but there were reports that last night, yesterday evening rather, there was a meeting um, in Kiev in which, um, you know, Zeluzhny and all the other military commanders reported to Zelensky directly. I should say that unlike, you know, the Russian command structure, um, Zelensky is very, very much involved as the commander in chief in actual military decision making. He's he's seems to be taking a more proactive role in making decisions about the war, about the actual way in which operations are conducted, then so far as we can see, Putin himself does. But put that aside. Anyway, they met with Zelensky, and the reports say that Zeluzhny told him, we're almost surrounded in Solidar. We have to pull out of Solidar now. And um, as you absolutely rightly said, it seems that Zelensky himself is... Um, dithering, which is what he always does in these situations. Um, there were reports circulating on the, you know, on various places on the internet that the Ukrainians were actually going to pull out of Solidar, the western part of Solidar that they still control um, over the course of last night, and that they were going to abandon the city then. That doesn't seem to have happened. They seem instead to be still there. They're still fighting going on in Western Solidar, that they are being pushed increasingly to the edge of the of the town. And I've seen film, uh, which I believe is Ukrainian film, by the way, which shows what happens if you try and leave on one of the roads that passes out of Solidar to the west and the north. I mean, you are already going to be heavily hit by Russian artillery. Russian artillery is operating all along this road. So, yes, they can probably still get the troops out, but it might not be so easy to get any heavy equipment that is left in Solidar. But as you rightly said, Zelensky himself seems to be unwilling to countenance a retreat. This has been the pattern throughout the war. He's constantly unwilling to countenance retreats. We saw that in Mariupol. We saw that in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. We're seeing it again um, in Solidar and Bakhmut. And on the contrary, he's constantly badgering the Ukrainian military to launch offensives and attacks in all sorts of places, Kharkov region, Kherson region, Zaporozhye, which the military themselves don't particularly, or so it seems, want to do. And part of it is, you know, Zelensky's background is in media. He's obviously always worried about the media side of things, the optics of Ukraine 
being pushed back, retreating, driven out of a place like Solidar. And of course, as you again absolutely rightly said, this defeat in Solidar and the likely defeat in Bakhmut, which is very soon going to follow, is going to create problems for the Western media narrative of Ukraine advancing from victory for, to victory, the Russians being in retreat and in disarray. And, well, yesterday you started to see problems in the British media. So yesterday the big story in The Guardian, for example, was uh, uh, Ukraine sends reinforcements to Bakhmut the implication being that, you know, Bakhmut was going to be defended, that the Ukrainians were going to push the Russians back. Today, by contrast, we're starting to get more dribbles of reports about how Ukraine is pushing, being pushed out of Solidar, that Solidar is likely to fall. But, you know, this isn't really important. It's no big deal. Solidar isn't that important. Bakhmut itself isn't that important. And it's only one Russian victory um, against uh, a backdrop of Russia being defeated everywhere else. Now, they can just about hold that narrative together. You know, if it is only if it were only limited to Solidar and Bakhmut, but if, as you know, it's been repeatedly said by more and more people, Bakhmut is actually, and Solidar are actually places of strategic significance, that their fall will lead to a general gloss of multiple positions for Ukraine across the Donbass, then that would be an impossible narrative to sustain. And one does wonder what the West will do then. Well, the entire narrative of the collective West, whether it's been NATO officials, the Biden White House, uh, the EU officials, the media, Alensky, the entire narrative is built on the premise that NATO and Ukraine are going to push Russia out of Ukrainian lands, including Crimea. I mean, that's that's been the the entire framing of this of of how the the collective West and Ukraine are going to take on Russia. That is the goal. The goal is Russia pre nineteen ninety one uh, Ukraine pre nineteen ninety one borders. Yeah, and, and they go on about that, and they've gone on yes. about that. You know, yes. article after article, speech after speech, statement after statement. So when when you see the territory in reverse being taken by the Russians, and you couple that with horrendous, uh, terrible, catastrophic loss in personnel and equipment, th then people are going to start to say, "Wait a minute." We've been told one thing and we're seeing everything, all the metrics moving in a completely opposite direction. And, and then you can also make the economic argument as well. You know, Russia's yes. economy is going to be in tatters. It, they see everything moving in a, in a different direction than what they've, uh, they've been led to believe. And, and that's, that's a problem. While Russia, they have said, Surovikin has, has, has specifically said, my goal as commander at this point is to grind down the Ukraine military. I mean, he said that. He said it's going to be slow. It's going to be a war of attrition. But my goal is to grind down the, uh, the Ukraine military, demilitarization. Uh, yes, there's territory involved. Yes, Russia has incorporated four new regions. But 
it's always been about fighting the Ukraine military beyond and above anything else. And when Russia needs to retreat from territory in order to preserve uh, personnel and, uh, and, and equipment, they do that without any hesitation. They take the media hits. That's, that is exactly right. I mean, the Russians have a much simpler uh, 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 task explaining what's going on to their, their public and in their media because, well, I mean, they've been fairly consistent in what they've been saying for many months now. Not always, but for very, many months now. Whereas the West has been consistently promoting this story about Ukraine resisting Ukraine winning, Ukraine recovering all its lost lands, that sort of thing. I will say that every so often you do see some people in the West come forward and say that the objective is to push Russia back to the 24th February lines, which, of course, would mean Crimea still under Russian control. And it would still mean the Donbass regions, the Donetsk and people and Lugansk People's Republics, as they were constituted before the start of the most recent fighting, you know, being pushed back to that point. I, I don't think that, though, is anywhere close to being the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative is very much the one you said. Well, you know, they are going to get into this trap, but it's a trap of their own making. I don't know how they get out of it. I mean, I suspect the way they get out of it is one you've touched on in the past, which is that they relegate the story. They start moving on to some other story, you know, Taiwan, maybe, uh, 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 Iran, uh, uh, something else. Um, but they don't talk as much about Ukraine. And they try to sort of play down the significance of what's happening in Ukraine. That's one possibility. The other possibility, which we can never discount, is that they double and triple down. So they've sent Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. They've sent uh, um, uh, Marder infantry fighting vehicles. They've sent Paladin self-propelled guns. This is the latest uh, weapons delivery. They're going to, they've sent Patriots. Now they're going to send Aster air defense missiles. Um, not going to make any significant dis difference. They're not that many of them. They don't provide much of a new capability. They're going to send heavy battle tanks, Leopard 2s, Challenger 2s from Britain, perhaps Leclerc's from France, perhaps even Abrams that they're from the US, that they're ruling that out from the moment. And, of course, ultimately, always the danger that they might try and persuade some of the East European states of NATO, like Poland, to become directly involved in the fighting. And of course, Poland is now talking about setting up a new division on the eastern borders, um, equipped exclusively with Western equipment, Abrams tanks, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, and perhaps, just possibly, that's earmarked for some kind of intervention in Ukraine. So I think that's it's going to be one or the other, it seems to me. They're either going to try to um, forget the whole story, pretend this all didn't happen, or, you know, relegate it to a sort of minor um, you know, affair, or in the alternative, they double, triple down in exactly the way I've just said, and which we've discussed on previous programs. But it's going to be one or the other. I mean, they can't, you know, 
except that this has been a defeat, a straightforward defeat, like, you know, because far too many political um, reputations now hang on this and far more journalistic reputations hang on this as well, by the way. Yeah, I don't think they even know which one they're going to do. I don't think they know yet. And um, I believe there's a faction in, uh, in NATO and, uh, and in the White House uh, in Brussels that um, they believe that if they can extend the war just a little bit longer, then they can slow walk the citizens of the, uh, of the collective West into accepting the troops on the ground. You know, they, they're, they're leading up to it. They, they're, they're now sending the Bradleys. Now they're going to, uh, France sent the light tanks. Now they're talking about the lepers. Now you have the, the Challenger 2s. Pretty soon it'll be the Abrams. Eventually they're thinking if we can just delay this another six months, nine months, 12 months, Eventually, we can get those first troops in there, the Polish troops, the Romanian troops, get them in there openly, openly admit they're there, not, you know, mercenaries and stuff like that, advisors, you know, openly admit, okay, 1,000 troops from NATO are going to enter Ukraine to stabilize the situation. I mean, that, that's what it seems like to me if they go the route of, uh, of more escalation, uh, just doubling and tripling down on this losing formula, I think the whole purpose of extending the conflict is to eventually get the people of the West to just accept the fact that troops are going to be going into Ukraine. And for that, they probably need to draw this war out for another year plus, maybe even longer. So so that's why they keep on talking about extending the war and and giving these weapons it's like they're just they're inching towards it. You know, first we'll give them some ammo, then we'll give them some artillery, then we'll give them some missiles, then we'll give them some uh, fighting vehicles, then we'll give them some tanks. Eventually, you're, you're going to get to the point where you say, okay, a thousand troops are going in. And, and we admit it, a thousand NATO troops are going in. I, I'm afraid you're exactly right. I mean I, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen, but I think it's highly likely or very likely that it will happen. Because, as we've discussed so many times, these people do not have a reverse gear. Now, the trouble is that, um, yes, they can do that. Will it change the direction of the war? Will it change the outcome of the war? Or will it just be a case of, you know, investing more resources in a failing enterprise, doubling, tripling down? In effect, what you're describing is what the EU, and we're talking about, you know, a lot to a great extent, it's the EU officials and people like that. What they classically do, which is they try to find a way of kicking the can down the road. And by sending some more tanks, by sending some more machines, by sending eventually people to fight, that's what they're doing. They're kicking the can down the road. The, the problem is that there is another side, which is the Russians who might not be willing to play along with that, at least not indefinitely. Um, there is also the other factor that my own sense is that a lot of Western, the Western public is tiring of this war. Now, I saw a recent opinion poll in Germany, and this came after the announcement of the transfer of the martyrs 
to Ukraine. And a plurality, not yet a majority, but a plurality of Germans, um, you know, who participated in the poll, 49%. So it's almost a plurality opposed it. And they clearly seem to oppose leopards to tank supplies as well. Now, that's a shift from the position at the start of the conflict, which was very much we're going to support Ukraine no matter what. We're going to accept whatever sanctions, uh, uh, whatever back, you know, back lash there is from the sanctions. We're going to provide the Ukrainians with all the things they need. The risk is that even despite the very tight information control that we're seeing in the West, the longer this thing drags on, it won't be that they will gradually accustom people to the idea that we are going to intervene directly, maybe not ourselves, but through our allies, through the Poles, the Romanians, the Slovaks, whatever. It could be that on the contrary, what starts to happen is that opposition starts to harden and crystallize and doubts begin to, you know, to grow. And of course, if that starts in a big way, that can be difficult to prevent also. So, you know, that's that's the problem they face. Be interesting to see what they do. That's one of the problems with Solidar and Bakhmut and Marinka, this whole domino effect losing the Donbass is that it's going to lead a lot of uh, EU member states. I, I believe the smaller EU member states that may not be uh, privileged to some of the information as to what is really going on in Ukraine. I think a lot of the smaller states are just kind of taking the narrative at, at face value, whatever the uh, whatever van der Leyen is telling them, whatever uh, CNN or Reuters is telling them. I think a lot of the smaller uh, EU member states are saying, yeah, that's probably what's happening. Ukraine is winning. Uh, Russia's economy is falling apart. All is good. We've taken Kherson and Kharkiv. All is good. And I think uh, th this domino effect of what's going to occur Yes, is going to probably shock a lot of uh, EU leaders. I believe I I'm talking top leaders in in many of the of the medium sized to smaller countries. Are going to probably say, "Well, did did, did you guys in Germany, France, uh, Netherlands, did you guys know about this?" You know, the, the the major players in the EU who I'm sure understand what's going on. I mean, this is going to shake the. The unity of uh, of the European Union, and we know that the Biden White House and NATO they place a premium on on EU unity and the unity of the alliance and the, the opposition towards towards Putin. It's really important that everyone is uh, is united. But um, real quick, a, a final point is that Ukraine officials they're not making a secret as to as to the fact that they want more. Uh, NATO, U.S., West involvement in Ukraine. Kaluba the other day had, uh, said, uh, actually, I think it was via Twitter, that he put out a tweet and he said, yeah, you've got, you guys have given us a good amount of stuff, but it's not enough. He said, it's not enough. We want more. Uh, Reznikov, the defense minister, he pretty much said in, in an interview the other day, look, uh, we're fighting for NATO. That's what we're fighting. We're fighting on behalf of NATO. So give us more things. So, I mean, the Ukraine high high level officials are are telling the, the entire world, we want the West to give us more weapons to get more involved in this war. Otherwise, it's over. Yes, that's exactly what they're saying. And of course, that's exactly what they've been saying right from the outset. And whatever happens in the war, they're going to continue saying it because it should be 
obvious to anybody by now that Ukraine, in terms of weapons, is a black hole. The more you send, the more they need, the more their demands are going to grow. They're never going to ease off. If they lose, they need more weapons because they need more weapons to defend themselves and to reverse the defeats. If they win, they need more weapons to exploit their victories. So, I mean, that's 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 what's inevitably going to happen here. And, of course, and you know, I'm not being cynical. I'm just being realistic and frank and saying it as it is. An awful lot of these weapons don't end up where they're meant to go. And, you know, a lot of them end up in all sorts of other places, too. And so there's all these there's all this dynamic at play. And whatever happens in Solidar, Bakhmut, Marinka, Donbass, other Siversk, all of these places that we've been talking about, Kremenaya, Svatovo, Ukraine is definitely going to use it to come back and demand more weapons. What was Zelensky's visit to Washington all about? It was an endless demand for weapons and more weapons and still more weapons. Now, that's what the Ukrainians are going to do. The question is, how do leaders in the West react? And you're absolutely right. I think some of the smaller countries, especially in the in um, Central and Eastern Europe, but also along you know the Southern Mediterranean, they're going to start getting increasingly nervous. They're going to start saying, "Where is all this going?" And they're going to become worried that you know if if the Russians look like they're going to win in Ukraine, where does this leave us? We've exposed ourselves. We've given away lots of our own weapons. We've given away our missiles, our tanks, our infantry fighting vehicles. We've infuriated the Russians. We've broken promises we made to them about what we were going to do with all of these weapons that we either bought from the Russians or inherited from the Warsaw Pact or had the Russians maintained for us. What are we going to do? And you can see that there's going to be recriminations behind the scenes. By the way, I'm sure there already are. I, you can see that, you know, doubts, which perhaps have been there for some time, might start to come up to the open. But I'm going to say this. It's difficult always to know where this dynamic will go. On the one hand, if smaller countries within NATO and the EU start raising concerns, I can very easily see how some of the dominant forces in NATO and in the EU system, the collective West, the NATO bureaucracy, the EU bureaucracy, Stoltenberg and, or, and whoever his successor is, uh, Ursula, um, the White House in Washington, the neocons in the State Department, the British Foreign Office, <laughs> they're all going to be working overtime, if you like, to bully and browbeat and scare these countries. And... These countries, the leaders of these countries are very frightened. Never forget this of these people. Um, so th there's going to be an even bigger push to tighten block discipline in order to intimidate, if you like, the doubters. At the same time, on the part of these countries, I can't help but think that if the war goes increasingly wrong, Doubts are going to grow and there's going to be the beginnings of a feeling about, well, are we really on the right side 
is NATO really working for us? Is the EU really working for us? We're being pushed into confrontations that don't make sense for us. The Americans aren't defending us directly. They're always operating through proxies. They want us to be the next proxy. Do we really want to send our, our boys to Ukraine to die in this proxy war? So I can see all kinds of complex battles and fights and arguments swelling up in all sorts of places. And you've seen how there's been this swing backwards and forwards in Bulgaria. Bulgarian government initially very gung-ho, very supportive of the West in Ukraine. It then collapses. New elections happen. New parties win. They seem to be minded to reverse course to try and pull things back. They don't seem to be so keen on intervening in Ukraine on behalf of the West. And then through who knows what, you know, strings being pulled, threats being made, offers being given, that very same new Bulgarian coalition suddenly reverses course, goes back to taking a very pro-Western position, um, supplies weapons to Ukraine, which it said previously it would never do. And now again, we hear more reports coming from Bulgaria that this is unpopular in the country, that protests are building up in the country, that tensions over the policy are rising in the country. And I'm sure this will be true in many other places, in Central Europe, in Southern Europe, in Greece, in the Balkans, in Croatia, for example, in all kinds of places. So this is going to be a very complex business. And I think it could go many different ways, actually. But the one thing I'm also sure about is that however much material and weapons and people you eventually send to Ukraine, it's not going to change the eventual end point. Just as, you know, all those vast amounts of Western weapons that were sent into South Vietnam and into Afghanistan didn't change the end point of those wars. It prolonged them. It caused massive devastation, enormous loss of life, but it didn't alter the ultimate outcome of the conflict. And of course, in the case of this particular conflict, what it is doing in the meantime is that it is hardening Russia and strengthening its alliance systems with other countries like China, which are, to put it mildly, not friendly to the West. Yeah, and uh, Europe is losing everything. Europe and you, is losing Europe is everything they, uh, they've built up over so many decades. And the people of, uh, of Europe were promised a victory. They were promised a regime change in Russia. They were promised the riches of, uh, of the Russian Federation and cheap commodities and gas and all, all of these things because Putin was going to be uh, deposed. He was going to be overthrown. And order would have been restored. And uh, now they're seeing that they're on the losing side. And a lot of people are going to be asking, you know, how, how did we end up here when over the past 11 months, you've been telling us that uh, Ukraine is, is, is gaining more and more territory and Zelensky is, is about to march on Moscow. That's, that's been the narrative for the last 11 months. Well, it, it absolutely has. And I'm going to add something else because this is the other dimension. If the information control eventually breaks down. 
which I think is by no means impossible. I mean, you know, there's a lot of alternative alternative viewpoints expressed about this. They're not rising to the surface at the moment, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. If people begin, in Europe especially, begin to understand how different this conflict has been from everything that they've been told up to this point, if they are told, for example, the full story of the Minsk agreement, of the fact that the West was arming Ukraine when it was pretending it wasn't, of the nature of the Ukrainian government that is being supported, of the truth about the war, and you know how the war has really been played out. Well, I mean, it could create a credibility crisis in Europe, the like of which we have never seen. I mean, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was this expression in the United States about the fact that Vietnam had created a credibility gap, that people no longer believed what the US government was saying about almost anything, because they felt that it had no longer, it hadn't been telling the truth about Vietnam, which, by the way, it hadn't been. But the point was that for all that, there was no denying the legitimacy of U.S. institutions because the U.S. is a country and a nation and its institutions and its legitimacy is strong. EU isn't like that at all. There's a sense, if the sense begins to take hold across Europe, that people have been led up an utterly destructive path by being fed all kinds of things that were untrue or even outright lies by the EU leadership, well, then the reaction could be simply enormous. And if we're talking about a credibility gap, it could be an existential one. Yeah. All right. We will uh, leave it there. The Dread.locals.com. We are also on Rockfin as well. And go to the Dread shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.